to another Fudson Film Podcast. Watashi wa Drew Tarantalisu. Soshite Watashi wa Sokoto Morisu. Tu Korego Isotoman. Haro! Niyote Konya Sankashite Imasu. Now, my extremely feeble, nay, pitiable attempts at an introduction in Japanese. Yes, oh, it was Japanese. Japanese! <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was going Lithuanian. I was trying to figure out the connection. <laughs> may give you a clue that in this episode we are turning our eyes to the east and specifically to the work of possibly the only Japanese filmmaker whose art and body of work can rival that of Akira Kurosawa in both its influence and impact, particularly outside of Japan. I refer of course to Miyazaki Hayao, legendary animator, storyteller and co-founder of Studio Ghibli. And no matter how you may say it, I assure you that Ghibli is how it is pronounced. I have a bugbear, but <laughs> and I must share such things. Yes, a forum for your bugbears. In order to give Miyazaki-san his due, we are going to be making two podcasts to cover his work. This episode will cover his career from his feature debut, The Castle of Cagliostro, up to the interwar aerial hijinks of Porco Rosso. And this month's compare and contrast episode will make way for the second part, in which we will cover the remainder from Princess Mononoke to The Wind Rises. Born in Tokyo during World War II, Miyazaki originally had aspirations to become a manga author, but began his career as an animator in 1963, working in television and film, and adding as many strings to his bow as he could, taking the roles of animator, storyboarder, concept artist, scene designer, scriptwriter and director, as well as being a union leader. And it was during this period that he began his half-century collaboration with Takahata Isao, with whom he would go on to found Studio Ghibli. His work is distinguished by lush, colourful drawing, often European-inspired settings, and strong female characters. While he was partly burned by the poor reception to Laputa Castle in the Sky, which had a male lead character, his decision to typically focus on women or girls has been a wise and successful move. Miyazaki has said that if it's a story like everything will be fine once we defeat him, it's better to have a male as a lead. But if we try to make an adventure story with a male lead, we have no choice other than doing Indiana Jones, with a Nazi or someone else who's a villain in everybody's eyes. He also believes that women are more believable as characters when it comes to straddling the real world and something more magical, and that they are deeper and less aggressive than men. What a cuck. <laughs> it's just everyday casual sexism not that this means that his female characters are weak as his heroines are typically resourceful intelligent independent and strong and most certainly not your typical disney-like princesses but it is the still relative rarity of such female roles that makes this necessary to mention miyazaki's films are also often notable for their strong sometimes heavy-handed environmental messages and the acknowledgement of children as miniature adults with themes of puberty and the awakening of sexuality all without perversity treating their audience with intelligence in like mind his stories often have more in common with the tone of brothers grim like european fairy tales rather than the versions which the victorians defanged and disney utterly sanitized so chaps what was your first exposure to the works of miyazaki-san no, Craig, perhaps you'd like to go first as you covered a little of this in our very first episode. Yeah, my first experience with this was, uh, if I remember correctly, I was off a school sick and on STV, the Scottish version of ITV, uh, as it was at the time, Channel 3, 
<laughs> on our old CRT sets, aired what I can only assume was a version of Laputa, which had been prepared for airlines. Uh, shortly after its release in uh, cinemas. It was kind of a half-assed dub version. I'd never seen anything like this before in my life. And I managed to tape it off the telly only for my dad to tape some football over that cassette the next weekend. (laughs) And so it was lost forever. And I spent a great deal of the next sort of five or six years desperately trying to track down a copy of this film. I wrote to the TV station. They denied all knowledge of having aired it. And I understand there were all sort of copyright um, issues uh, around at the time, which is why it was only ever shown once. And went so far as toying with the notion of buying a Japanese Laserdisc import at something like 130 quid and either a Laserdisc player to play it on or going through a very expensive conversion process to VHS with one of the few places in the country would do that at the time. And yes, so entranced was I by this thing, this wonderful, wonderful adventure tale that I'd seen on television that absolutely captivated me. So that was the start of my romance with Miyazaki movies. And that was, um, it's scary to talk about it in these terms now, but about a quarter of a century ago, I should imagine. There or thereabouts. Frightening. Yes. Right. <laughs> you, Scott? I have no such story. In fact, I'd be lying if I could tell you when the first <laughs> experience was. I think it was Princess Mononoke when it came out in cinemas, and I hadn't really seen anything up until there. I might have seen Castle of Cagliostro at some point before that, but Princess Mononoke is probably the first one that I can actually remember seeing, and they've been sort of backfilling since then. Did you get to see Mononoke on the big screen? Uh, yes, at some point. I forget if it was oh, if it came didn't. over in... Like the Japanese format originally, or if it was the Disney release, because it got the voiceover by Disney, if I recall correctly, and mm. was released cinematically over here. Um, so I saw one of them too. That's crazy. One of my greatest regrets in life is that a few years ago, and the reasons why it was screened here, I suppose, might become apparent when we talk about it, but several years ago, like an, an original print of Laputa was screened in Aberystwyth in Wales. <laughs> um, and I had no idea this had happened until about two years after, and I was absolutely gutted. Um, <laughs> I would sell just about anything to see that on the big screen. So For me... The first time I can really remember being aware, although I'd suspect at the time I didn't know the name, the first time I remember being aware is I had this friend at school who had this crazy idea that he'd seen this film on TV that the television <laughs> station said didn't exist. And I think I must have gathered quite a bit of the story from his fervent <laughs> recollections of it. And then with that same friend... Around about the time we finished high school, I think, mm-hmm. watching a yep. entirely legitimate video CD copy of Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, now, wait a minute. Super video CD, Drew. Super, Super video, video CD. <laughs> so, yes. Still, still my, my favourite format of all time, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny that because I was going to ask you if you recalled that I was going to I was going to recount that anecdote myself uh, <laughs> at the point at which we speak about Kiki. I'm glad you mentioned it first. I didn't realise. I can't remember that being your first exposure to Ghibli. See, no, I'm not certain, hmm. but it's the only it's the first Ghibli film that I can clearly remember seeing. I remember the time and the place, and obviously even the format. So it really stuck yeah. in my head quite well. I can't remember if it was because. I remember, I don't feel like disclosure here, you say, completely non-legitimately down-stealing a copy of it in the early days of broadband internet. I think, I can't remember if it was an SVCD format to start with. I think more likely it was a, a DVD copy, which I downloaded. But at the time, I don't think writable DVDs were a thing, or if they were, uh, drives and whatnot were prohibited, and the media were prohibitively mm-hmm. expensive. Yeah. So I converted it to Super Video CD and uh, split it over a couple of discs, if I remember correctly. 
Yes, and I have a very a very vivid memory of, of us watching it there. And what must have been an, uh, at a time when I, I I don't imagine we would have been too concerned about it, but imagine one of the least hetero scenes uh, possible. The two of us <laughs> sat on Drew's bed in his bedroom upstairs to his mum and dad's house watching Kiki's delivery service <laughs> in their late teens. Oh, the women were all over us like, like a rash, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, and then that most clearly remember then after that, saw a few in the cinema and then I think like Scott backfilling in a lot after that though I've tried to keep more up to date recently yes so what's quite interesting though is that oh you aside Craig I guess because I'm not quite sure when you saw Laputa but while these I mean for the most part yes they're children's films I mean there are variations but it's certainly how other people think of them but largely we all came to them as if not adults then at least adolescents rather than children. Young adults, certainly, um, yeah. Yeah, and we've still found them to be captivating works, I think. Ooh. Oh, I'm assuming you like them too, so. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which brings us, of course, to the question of, is his work good? And that's the question we're here to discuss today. So we should probably actually talk about the films now. To that end, I am going to hand over to Scott and The Castle of Cagliostro. Yes, um, as Drew's alluded to earlier, uh, we are a movie podcast, so we're only looking at Miyazaki's feature-length output, but it's far from the full story of his career. Uh, You could do a whole podcast series by himself on his earlier work, if you include that too. In his early career, he covered a range of roles from fill-in animator to character designer to writer to director of a number of television serials, and it's perhaps this multidisciplinary grounding that led to his mastery of the art down the road. So, 1979's Castle of Cagliostro is neither Miyazaki's first time in the director's chair, nor the first time he's dealt with the gentleman thief Lupin III. It's not, however, his first film for Studio Ghibli, I think you could call it. Is it Ghibli? Which wouldn't be formed another six years after this TMS Entertainment produced film, but it would be churlish to skip over Castle of Cagliostro just because it's not uh, by that famous studio. And this is certainly a wonderful debut feature. Uh, we're dropped straight into the action with Arsene Lupin and his sidekick Abraham Lincoln making a dash with a huge <laughs> cash haul from a casino. <laughs> Oh, bravo, sir. Well, it is, isn't it? (laughs) Only to find out that the money is counterfeit. The infamous goat money has resurfaced a high-quality forgery that's appeared at various critical points in history, often tipping world events one way or the other. Goat money? That's what it's called in my own. Yeah. Uh, My subtitles say gothic. (laughs) (laughs) That's odd. It it doesn't make sense, but it's it's playing off the um, family emblem. Okay. that they've got, yeah. I, I assume. <laughs> it's never really explained, but yeah. That's what it is in my copy anyway. Yeah, any copy I've had of it, yeah. This is rumoured to come out of the small country of Gagliusro and Lupin and, all right, Daisuke Jigen, uh, Jigen, I assume, uh, resolve to solve this mystery that has so far claimed the lives of all who have poked their noses into it. They're not long over the border in their souped-up Fiat 500 before they blunder across a young girl driving at a breakneck speed to escape a group of thugs. Uh, Lupin can't resist helping out, which doesn't go entirely to plan, but she does manage to hand off a signet ring to Lupin, indicating that she is a member of the royal family. It turns out that not only do Lupin and Clarice, for that's her name, have some history together, but also that she's being held by the country's regent, Count Cagliostro, in advance of a forced marriage. 
So that's just another reason for Pan to go up against Cagliostro and his guards and his ninja assassins. But he's going to have to call for some backup from his samurai friend Goiman Ishikawa the 13th <laughs> and even a temporary alliance with his arch rival Interpol inspector Koichi Senegata as they try and infiltrate and uncover the secrets of the castle of Cagliostro. Now, this film is as old as I am, but has aged considerably better. Uh, <laughs> certainly, it's much better looking. While... <laughs> In fairness, Scott, you've never had the benefit of having been remastered. That's, that's true. I've, I've never had that DVD release. Uh, I don't even think you're THX certified, are you? <laughs> I'm at best a third generation VHS copy. So, <laughs> admittedly, both Miyazaki's talents and animation technology has improved over time. This does not look like a film pushing 40 years old with well-realised, exciting action sequences rendered over beautiful backdrops. It's all very well-paced, rattling through at a breakneck pace that, if anything, is too quick for the amount of stuff crammed in mm. here. While it's far from necessary to enjoy it, it does seem as if it's taking some uh, prior knowledge of the characters for granted, which is odd, as having no experience of this beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, I was strange to find out that Miyazaki has taken a far lighter interpretation of the character than the manga that this is stemmed from. Mm-hmm. This may annoy purists, but it should present no problem to the uninitiated. Now, if there's one thing I've said about every film, it's that it would be better if it had samurai in it. (laughs) Hidden Figures is a well-made film about racism and sexism, but it would be better if it had a samurai in it. (laughs) The one thing missing from Lawrence of Arabia. Samurai. Blackfish, document about killer whales, needed samurai. The one thing left unspoken in this constant demand is, of course, that the samurai actually do something useful once they're in the film, which is why the minimisation of anything useful at all for Goemon to do is kind of infuriating and feels rather like a demand from a production company rather than any sort of character essential to the story that Miyazaki wants to tell, Uh, which is really just another example of this film trying to cram quite a lot in to a very small running time. But frankly, that and pretty much anything else a good level at it are nitpicks. Uh, Many directors will see out of their career without making a film as enjoyable Mm -hmm. as this, and that it's arguably the least of Miyazaki's works is far more of a testament to the quality of the rest of them than any sort of criticism of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. It's like thematically, this film is nothing, but what it is is just an absolutely rip roaring adventure. Like you, mm-hmm. um, when I first saw uh, Cagliostro some time ago, I'd come to it. It was, uh, I'm trying to think where it fell in the sort of chronology of my picking through the back catalogue, uh, probably midway through, to be, to be fair. And I expected it to be a much lesser work. And as I say, thematically, yes, but I, like you, Scott, came on board with no baggage concerning preconceived notions. I was aware of the importance and the relevance culturally of Lupin III as a popular character throughout many veins of media in Japan. Quite, well, very, very iconic character in Japanese culture, but I had consumed none of that media whatsoever and I didn't know what to expect and just this is such a breakneck yarn full of ridiculously over-the-top set pieces <laughs> and totally hilarious action. And it moves at such a lick, like you say, that you don't really get a chance to stop and consider any of the myriad flaws with it. It's just a really fun adventure movie. And as you point out, technically, no, it is not Miyazaki's greatest work, but you know, how many other directors' work are as good as Miyazaki's <laughs> greatest work. It is... Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade to Raiders of the Lost Ark in terms of quality, not in terms of plot, obviously. 
<laughs> yeah, I just enormous, enormous fun. And uh, it was a real pleasure to go back and watch it again because I hadn't actually watched it in probably over a decade. It's one of those that just kind of knocks about at the back of the collection. So to dust it off for this episode and have an excuse to go back and watch it again was a, a real pleasure, really. There's nothing to read into it. Uh, there's no great analysis to be done. It's just a massive, massive hoot of a movie. Yeah, it's just such a, such a caper heist film. And it's just really very entertaining. I was not aware of Lupin the Third at all, and really still am not. I had only ever been vaguely aware of Arsène Lupin, the original French story of which Lupin the mm. Third was supposed to be the grandson, I think. Something like that, yeah. And yes, I know, Scott, you read that there's some elements in there that it's expect you to know something more about the character, yeah. but I really don't think it takes much away from it at all. And... What was kind of shocking actually to me to find out just in the research for this podcast was quite how different the original television series character was. Yeah, just a, just a bit, isn't yeah. it? Um, this what's, is, the, what's the crack there? Because I've done no research into that whatsoever, so okay, it's all news to me. This is, this is, um, it's kind of made me angry and you'll see why in a minute um, and nothing to do with this film or Hayao Miyazaki. But what do you expect from a guy called Monkey Punch? <laughs> yeah, the original was created by a guy called Monkey Punch, right? And he said that, you know, he likes Castle Cagliostro and that Miyazaki's vision of Lupin was just different from his own. But a lot of fans had had a backlash because they thought the character was quite different. But I'm kind of glad because in Monkey Punch's own words, because in disagree with uh, Miyazaki's vision of Lupin, he said... I wouldn't have had him rescue the girl. I would have had him rape her. There's a slightly different uh-huh. tone from most music. That's quite a different tone from the source material, I think. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of... Just wow. Really stopped in my tracks when I read that earlier today. <laughs> I've somewhat hit a wall there myself. Is that <laughs> When was that interview given? And to it's whom? 2014. Oh my days, as recent. So this is not some interview from like <laughs> the mid 80s when it was still see. acceptable to be horrendously misogynist and uh, right. This is quite, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like this version of Lupin better than the one he's proposing. Yes. To Mr. and Mrs. Punch, son, monkey. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, actually, where that was... This is Wikipedia, so obviously um, you have to be careful with things, but it was in something called My Top 10 Anime Part 1 on a website called Cartoon Research. Which, so the article's from 2014, but it could be reusing old interview material. But right, okay. Assuming that that's a, an accurate quote, then that's rather shocking. Kind of, even regardless of time. That's, yeah, so there's no yeah, time that's right. No. Ob- objectively. Objectively. <laughs> Just... Man, Wrong. sorry, that's broadsided us a bit there. It's probably taken us a bit off topic, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> it's wow. not my intention, but just um, no, that's... worth mentioning because in its original Japanese release, part of the problem had been that fans of the television series wanted the more was so different in them. Understood quite how different. <laughs> Man alive! Anywho, <laughs> it's one of those things that kind of sour you on something I guess possibly like that horrible line in Casino Royale that I know Scott has mentioned yeah. a couple of times before mm. but yes I think well, let's suffice to say though that the Miyazaki version is a thoroughly entertaining tale yes and if you've not seen it then please remedy this and then we can move on to his next work I think now before he was working in animation Miyazaki-san began to write a manga that he deliberately tried to make difficult if not impossible to turn into film 
Surely then, he must have spent a good time kicking himself when, in 1984, he had to turn that very same manga into a film, and in fact 10 years before he managed to complete the actual book. Naushikawa of the Valley of the Wind is set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, thousand years after a great, self-inflicted calamity has befallen the earth, almost annihilated humanity, and created a great sea of decay, a toxic jungle which covers most of the planet. A few pockets of humanity remain on the edges of this wasteland, but they are always at risk of being infected by toxic spores or antagonising the gigantic insects which live in the jungle. One such settlement is the relatively serene Valley of the Wind, where lives a young princess called Naushika. When we first encounter her, she is soaring through the air in her glider, harvesting supplies from the jungle for her village to use. Spying a human fleeing from an enraged giant ohm, the largest and most dangerous of the insects, she saves the human, a returning traveller and swordsman named Lord Yupa, by calming the beast down with empathy, understanding and knowledge, crucially doing no harm to the creature. Soon after returning home, the valley's peace is shattered when a vast Turamekian aircraft crashes into it, bringing death, destruction, infectious spores and the promise of war. The cargo of the aircraft was a stolen god warrior, a doomsday weapon from before the apocalypse that the two Vermechians and their adversaries both want to use to destroy the toxic jungle and reclaim the earth. Such thoughts terrify Naushika and her people, who understand that to do so would be to enrage the Ohm and doom them all. Naturally, humans being idiots and all, the weapon is deployed anyway, and Naushika must attempt to defuse the situation, sacrificing herself to confront the enraged insects. She is gravely injured and then reborn, and is seen to be the fulfilment of an ancient prophecy, and, pretty much, saves the world. So, let's get the bad out of the way first. Kaze no Tane no Naushika, as it is in Japanese, suffers from being both an early outing for the director and from being adapted from a much larger story that, as the writer, he had deliberately made difficult to adapt. As a result, there are moments where the pace sags, and there are large portions of exposition that feel somewhat clunky. Its environmental message, while relevant, even more so today, is pretty overbearing. Certainly, it's a product of its time, during the nuclear threat of the Cold War, but it's also influenced by the director in Japan's own history, in this case the Minamata Bay mercury poisoning, and while the points may be inarguable, they are rather loud. Then there's the music. This is the first of many collaborations between composer Joe Hisaishi and Miyazaki, and it does feel quite incredibly 80s, though uh, your mileage may vary on how good or bad a thing that is. And, more than once, makes me think forcibly of the Terminator with the musical cues. <laughs> but almost all of what remains is, for me, upside. Beautiful animation settings with thrilling action sequences. This is the first film in which we see Miyazaki's fascination with planes and flight and his inventiveness makes for exciting and visually compelling scenes. And most importantly, the characters. The central character may be a princess, but really she's not like any princess you've seen before. Scientist, leader, explorer, intelligent, tender and noble, caring and humble. Naushika is still flawed though. She has fears and can lash out against the better angels of her nature when she is hurt, for example the killing of several soldiers after her father's death, all of which serves to make her a more round, believable person. The main antagonist too is a woman, Princess Kushana, a capable and feared war leader. But she's not a cookie-cutter bad guy. She's intelligent, understanding, and ruthless. 
if undoubtedly cold, and her far from simplistic characterization sows the seeds for the complex Lady Eboshi and Princess Mononoke. And I'll return to the animation once more. Like all of Miyazaki's work, the film is redolent with detail and nuance. So much of the nature of the characters is conveyed by facial expressions and body language. Kushana's drawl second-in-command Kuratoa is a standout here, and there are subtleties that most other animators wouldn't bother with or wouldn't be able to, such as the slight trembling of hands as to close the clothing of a wounded person. It conveys everything, without words. It's not perfect, but it is one hell of a second feature, and still very, very much worth watching. Also, fox squirrels, want... <laughs> I actually had not seen this until the other night there. I'd somehow not managed to cram it into my otherwise busy schedule. Uh, but uh, I was very impressed with Nosca, largely just due to the the world that they've created in here, which turns out to be something of a dual-edged sword, because about at least five times they breezed over something in one line. It was like, hey, wait, 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 whoa, 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 stop, go back, fill in some more detail about that, please. <laughs> um, this is one of the rare instances where I think a film, I would, I would quite happily have sat through six hours of it if it went into a bit more detail with that. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that was a criticism at the time too, because people knew the manga, and like, well, where's all this backstory? Mm-hmm. And having no knowledge whatsoever of that, there's a lot of stuff here that is, that's incredibly intriguing that I would have liked to have seen explored, and uh, it just wasn't. And that is really the only negative I took away from the film. I hardly enjoyed the rest of it. It is just a, a rip-roaring yarn with some strong lead characters. And yeah, that's certainly good enough to give it a recommendation from me. Like you, Scott, up until the other night, I had not had chance to fit this film into my schedule at any point, And it was the only Miyazaki movie that I hadn't watched. Uh, and I continue to not be able to fit it into my schedule. And so I can't <laughs> talk about this one. <laughs> Now that's something you need to remedy as soon as possible, Craig. <laughs> I shall. I very much shall. It's better than Death Race 2050. Wow. <laughs> high praise indeed. High, high praise. High praise. Okay, then, if our discussion of... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, just, short. I'm um, just thinking the other night I did, I did allow myself to be cajoled into watching Bridget Jones's Baby. So, there, technically speaking, there was an opportunity where I could have laid down a law and watched it, and I perhaps <laughs> regret that now. Yes, possibly for a long time also. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's, at least our discussion of it was positive. Uh, <laughs> but perhaps then, Craig, you'd like to tell us about a film that we know you have seen. Yes, uh, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, or if you live in certain parts of the world, Castle in the Sky... Or if you live in Japan, Tenko no Shiro Rayapita. Or if you live in Spain or Mexico, a name you've got to be very careful about pronouncing. Yes, yes, yes indeed. <laughs> Let us not go there, because um, I do not trust myself. Uh, Is the name in Spanish? <laughs> well, if you if you pronounce La Puta, ah, uh, yes, with the gap yes. <laughs> yes, a film which I spoke at some length about, I think, in uh, our very first episode ever. So yes. I shan't be going over too much old territory here, but as I pointed out earlier on, a film very close to my heart, my first and chance encounter with Miyazaki, and it remains my favourite of his works to this day. A proto-steampunk, Jules Verne-inspired action-adventure tale aimed, as you pointed out, Drew, is so often the case with Ghibli output, ostensibly at kids. Lapita, Castle in the Sky, is a tale of a chance encounter between a young boy from a mining town and a mysterious girl who quite literally falls from the sky into his arms. 
Pazu is a humble assistant to the miners, working the elevator and boiler equipment for his boss. Nishita, the young girl who falls gently from the sky, is a descendant of the royal line who hail from a mythical floating island in the sky. Her amulet, made from Levistone, or any one of about five other names, again, depending upon what region you're watching this movie in, is what <laughs> saved her during her fall, having narrowly escaped abduction at the hands of both sinister government agents and a band of unruly sky pirates who are all intent on finding the island named Lapita. Both Shita and Pazu are orphans, and with little to lose, the pair flee town in order to evade the pursuing pirates, comprised of Matriarch Dola and her bungling sons, and government agent Muska who is in possession of Laputan technology that can only be unlocked by the young girl and her stone amulet. The ensuing action takes place above ground, underground, and in the sky. Ashita falls foul of Muska once again, and Pazu joins forces with Dola's gang to mount a rescue bid that culminates on Laputa itself. Laputa is a beautifully paced movie that plays with all of the action and adventure of Indiana Jones. So again, interesting that you touched on that earlier, Drew, as well. The heart of Disney at its best and a romantic realism in its design that beautifully encapsulates late 19th century fiction and the Welsh mining communities that inspired the landscapes. It may not be Miyazaki's most accomplished work, I suspect we'll be talking about that movie in our next episode on this topic, but it is undoubtedly his most inspired classical adventure story and a pure flight of fantasy of the highest order that still entertains me as much today as it did, as I mentioned earlier, somewhere in the ballpark of a quarter century ago when I first encountered it. Yeah. It's got such a distinctive look about it as well. It's sort of steampunk with a Miyazaki flavour to it. Mm. It's a really appealing visual. And it's, I don't know, it's it's a strange mix sometimes in this film of almost like cartoonish like things. And then genuine peril, I guess is probably the best word. Mm, mm. It's um, people being shot with what are clearly realistic looking guns and yeah. with realistic consequences, which is not what you expect in a children's film. No. And it's just, there's so much to like about this film. Just the the scope of imagination for the creation of Laputa itself, which is just this breathtakingly beautiful setting. And then managing to create this really, really weird robot that's cute and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah. When it starts tearing that mofo up, it's yeah, quite it's, uh, it's quite sinister, isn't it? Gardening robots going to kill you all. It's a magical place. And it's a kind of magical film. Mm. The only thing that ever seemed slightly odd about it to me, and I know this plays slightly differently, again, depending on whether you're watching it with a dub or not, mm-hmm. is that when Sheeta goes aboard the pirate ship and starts washing the dishes and things... And then suddenly all these men are kind of fawning over. It made me feel a little uncomfortable. But it just, yes. in that film it's presented, it's kind of almost so normal and not in a creepy way. And I was like, uh, so I'm still a bit torn about that. Yeah, it does and, help that uh, sky pirates are incredibly gormless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sort of defying anything, any intent from it. So. Right, because depending upon which version of this you're watching and which, which dub of it you're watching, they are either sort of looking towards her as a romantic interest, which as you point out, Drew, is quite... Quite, quite unsettling, quite disturbing. But if I recall originally, the intention is that they're looking toward her as a sort of a, a, a leader figure. No, I mean, the animation would certainly suggest that there's something of a an infatuation at least. Now, what the two things that might make that less uncomfortable is their age. I mean, if they're like 16 or 17 or something, then maybe it's, you know, maybe not, in a, not appropriate, but it's not quite so creepy as if it it's was, not quite so monkey punchy yeah as if they were and it was another thing is too and why i mentioned the dub in particular 
is that in the original Japanese version, the kids sound really young. They sound like kids, mm-hmm. like 10 or 11. And I know that Japanese women very often like have higher pitched voices than Western women. It's a strange cultural phenomenon, but it's, it's, it's a broad truth to it. But the boy does as well. Whereas in, for instance, the US English dub, they sound, mm-hmm. she sounds much older. Although they didn't still, because it looks small. Specifically so. the Disney dub, because the version I saw on TV was the pre-Disney mm-hmm. agreement. It was the initial English dub. It was the really half-assed, I can't remember the name of the company that did it now. There's a whole story there. Again, I think I mentioned earlier, it was like originally it was dubbed for Japanese airlines or something like that. More than anything, like I wish I still had it kicking around on VHS just so that I could just so that I could go back and just out of interest watch that and see how it plays and see the differences between it and the original Japanese dub and the more recent Disney dub. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, that's there's bits there that make me kind of uncomfortable like that, but. The, the rest of it is just fantastic and fantastical. Like you say, it's, just, it's the scope of the imagination of the whole thing is just, I'll keep mm-hmm. coming back to this as we talk about the movies, but the phrase that I always associate is this romantic realism, the this sort of like hyper-realistic kind of expression of what looks to be a normal world, but just with a really fantastical elements to it that are just on the borderline between believable and ridiculous. It's hard to explain, but there's something about it which just captures the unbounded sort of imagination of childhood, Mm -hmm. but in a language that's accessible to adults, like kind of tapping back to your your old memories and your old sort of creative self when you didn't really understand the limits of things and you would you would envisage you know you would build models out of out of lego that would be the closest approximation of this you know like crazy like oversized sort of over designed flying machines and mm. that kind of thing um yeah, it feels like that kind of thing is brought to life yeah there's something about japanese animation in particular that they just get childhood in a way that Mm. You know, no other country seems to get how that particular skill seems to exist. Also, I've not seen all of the world's animation. You know, maybe the other examples are there, but of like the stuff that I've seen that has been broadly distributed, Japan seems to get that. Probably, so much anime is like really, really weird and very adult. At the other end of things, they can do this, which just captures the magic of childhood and imagination in a way that nothing else does mm. while at the same time having like believable characters and things and it's it's quite an incredible skill and Miyazaki himself is the master of it there's one thing also when they mentioned that I like that this has in common with Naushika too is that both of those films you know while we've complained that maybe there's some backstory that you'd really love to get although it's not necessarily crucial to understand the movie they both do have like opening sequences that if you're paying attention do tell you a bit of the story of what's happening mm. in Naushika you see like the, the storyboards effectively showing you some of the downfall of the civilizations before and then in this film you see in, like the rise of the technology then the fall and like the loss of it and it's not that common to see that sort of thing to put all to stick some of your story into the opening titles like that mm. And there's really quite a lot of depth in there. And again, it's the first of the it's the first of Miyazaki's films to deal with this theme of flight, which does so in the context of like a, a relatable form of flight, not necessarily contemporary, but recognizable. It's not in a, a strictly you know fantasy setting like now. Apart from the island, but yes, yes, apart from the island, obviously. But in terms of like the flying machines, it's all you know they're all based on recognizable aircraft, although somewhat abstracted from the real thing. Yeah, and just well. Because 
we've mentioned flying a lot and we're going to mention it more going on. <laughs> yes. I think it's maybe just worth mentioning this point too. Perhaps one of the reasons Miyazaki is so fascinated by flight, it's a legitimate thing to be fascinated by anyway, but his father actually owned a aircraft parts company. They built the tailplanes, I think, for Japanese fighters and that sort of thing. I was going to say, didn't they build parts for the Zeros or something like yeah, that? Yeah, which is part of the reason they made the wind rises, which we'll talk about in the next part. So ever since you know, seeing that as a young boy, he's been fascinated with flight ever since. And the studio he found, the studio Ghibli, is named after an Italian plane. And Ghibli had originally come from a Libyan word for a wind that blew in that country, but it's largely it's from an Italian, I think, fighter plane called the Ghibli. So it's all just he loves planes Italian fighter planes hold that thought we might come back to that <laughs> Scott what were you thinking on Laputa I don't really have anything more to say about it other than you guys have covered I, I agree completely I'm particularly charmed by the relationship between the uh, two kids uh, I think it's just mm. wonderfully believable and uh, charming and innocent um, mm-hmm. exactly yeah and it just works incredibly well as a film it's hugely enjoyable although to be honest if this film it's like we open on sky pilots Attacking a dirigible. Like, sold. Okay. Do whatever you like. I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm on board. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy it greatly. Nothing particularly to add other than what you've said. But yes, a hugely, hugely enjoyable film. And I uh, was incredibly impressed with it when I saw it. It's still one of my favourite um, Ghibli films. The best, probably not. But, you know, it's, <laughs> you're, you're sliding fag papers between them at that point, you know. Yeah. The only the only thing that bothers me about Laputa is that my daughter is obsessed with the next two movies that we're going to talk about the only two Ghibli films that she's been introduced to so far and the question is when do I introduce her to Laputa and what if she doesn't like it because it's going to devastate me yes you can't take the rejection can you (laughs) no but I don't think there's much danger of that I think uh, I think we'll give it another couple of months and then I'm pretty sure she'll lap it up no pun intended (laughs) now there is one film more closely associated with Miyazaki Hayao and Studio Ghibli more than any other. And Mr. Morris is going to have the pleasure of telling us about that one. Yes, it's My Neighbour Totoro, of course. Tatsu Kusakabe and his two daughters Satsuki and Mei move into a rural area of late 1950s Japan in order to be closer to their hospital-bound mother. In straightening out the mildly dilapidated home, the energetic Satsuki and Mei discover strange creatures hiding just out of sight. Suit sprites who dwell in empty houses displaced they soon float off but this is just the beginning of the supernatural adventures that satsuki and may will undertake one day with the elder sister satsuki off at school may's playtime in the garden is disturbed when she catches sight of two bunny-esque creatures parading around and gives chase leading through a briar patch and into an undiscovered hollow near the large camphor tree where she meets a rather larger version of the same forest guardian creatures this one named of course totoro Befriending Totoro, May would dearly love to show him off to her sister and father, although the same route to the tree no longer seems to exist. Tatsuo consoles May by saying that Totoro will reveal himself when he wishes to, and the family go about settling in to their new life in a new town, with Satsuki making new friends and drawing the awkward attention of a local boy who is struggling through that phase between finding girls icky and attractive. <laughs> and so it goes, with Totoro revealing himself to Satsuki in due course, when both Satsuki and Mei worry that their father hasn't returned late one night and head off to the bus stop to meet him. Turns out that there's also a cat bus, 
a bus that is a cat, which uses the same bus stop networks as human buses. <laughs> Here we discover that Totoro loves umbrellas. <laughs> and and again, so it goes with a number of you know, charming little character moments leading up to the film's conclusion where, spoiler warning, May goes missing, but Totoro and the cat bus help find her. Not that that's much of a spoiler, really. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Totoro, like most of Miyazaki's more character-focused work going forward, is not exactly overburdened with narrative. <laughs> uh, that is not to say that it is in any way unenjoyable as a film. Far from it. Uh, this is a film that is just packed full of character, wonderful little moments. Just the characters, your know, main particulars, is just wonderfully joyous bundle of energy that you know, really radiates through the screen and really this film uh, is made so special by these characters not only just that and the sheer cuteness of the, the Totoro character and the forest guardians that are around him but it's just one of the most joyful experiences mm-hmm. you can have while sat in front of a screen may as well just pass it over to you guys at this point there's not really much more I can add to that it is just a film that every time I watch it makes me feel happier at the end of it than it did going into it. And yeah. it is just such a wonderfully uplifting, joyous, positive uh, experience. And that it manages to create so much drama and explain so much about these characters without the slightest hint, or, well, almost no conflict and mm-hmm. almost no drama. But it still manages to tease out, you know, wonderful lives of these characters. Uh, and again, they just feel incredibly realistic and they feel incredibly believable, even when they're bouncing on the belly of a, a giant uh, forest guardian plush toy. <laughs> it's just an incredibly happy experience watching this film. Yeah. It's uh, just lovely. Yeah. This is still, probably always will be, my favourite Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki film. It's. Yes, it doesn't really have a plot, mm. but he- I mean, it's certainly Miyazaki will in films going forward. And we'll see him probably in our next podcast. Probably do a better job of blending character and narrative, but while still retaining the best of both worlds. So I could probably make a case for some other films being better mm. in a strict written down mm. checkboxy kind of text. But this is by far for me, his most enjoyable film. Yeah. And if you're not watching films to enjoy them, then what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, lots of luck to you in life. Yeah. Yeah. There are reasons to watch films that aren't enjoyable, but you don't avoid the ones that are enjoyable. Yeah. And yes, it's, it really is my favourite film because it's a film I simply do not tire of watching. It's constantly rewarding. It is beautiful joyful, funny, touching, sweet, sad at points. Mm. Um, and yes, so realistic. It's, I mean, I've made comments like this before with greater or lesser degrees of flippancy, but if you were to watch this and not just have a huge grin in your face, I would genuinely wonder for the state or possibly even the existence of your soul. <laughs> um, because it is just a purely joyful experience and oh just, I love the characters so much especially me I mentioned just a little while ago about no other country's animation output seeming to really get children and this is possibly the absolute pinnacle of child characterization oh. through simply animation there's a couple of points that like that that always come to mind one is when the little boy as you say Scott he's in that 
period between finding girls attractive and icky, horrible things. Um, <laughs> and he does, he's got his face screwed up and thrusts <laughs> the umbrella towards them to help them. It's like, oh, no, I, I like this girl, but no, I can't let her see that she likes me and kind of just in the cusp of beginning to have those sorts of feelings properly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's so believable. And then the other bit is the bit that gets me every time when the kids are just running through the house at the start. <laughs> um, yes, it's great. And it's so believable that that energy the kids have and then like shouting to get rid of the dust sprites, suit sprites and things. But when Nanny takes May to school because she wants to be with her big sister yeah, and she's standing there and her face is covered in tears and there's a snot running out of her nose and she's got this incredibly stubborn expression on her face. And then when sister comes out then she just throws herself against her and just holds her so hard and it just it's like a real person doing that mm. it's so incredibly well done and there's no words um just the, the look of defiance on her face and like I, i've been crying but i'm not going to cry anymore and this is what i want and i need my sister and then she just won't let her go I, the full film is full of magical moments like that and while certainly you could describe their father is a little carefree given that he does go wandering <laughs> off into the middle of the forest on her own and he leaves them alone inattentive yeah, at <laughs> times just a little eh? and he leaves them alone while he goes to work in a city <laughs> but at the same time in a more closed minded film I think more in the west too it would be oh I saw this magical thing in the garden and and maybe the best the parent character would be ah yes that's nice very very good and this the, the dad's just ah well maybe you've seen one of the forest guardians um, and they're not trying to prove it to him or anything but he's not trying to shut them down he's saying okay let them imagine that he doesn't know that it's real or at least real to them and that's just such a a fantastic attitude to take mm. just let the kids have their imaginations run wild don't try to clamp down on that yeah so yeah as far as i'm concerned this film's flawless i love it again uh you you've hit the nail on the head about the the characterization of the children and the childhood experience that's a good it's a good job that i love totoro because for a period there i had to watch it every other day <laughs> and i've lost count of the number of times that i've watched it now and but it it wasn't always thus. The first time that I watched Totoro, I was actually quite disengaged from it. I'm trying to remember again at what point in sort of my journey through Ghibli I came to it. But I suspect because, as you say, Scott, there's no real conflict in this film. There's very little drama, and I think I was I was almost primed for that kind of thing. Although the nature of Totoro and these forest-dwelling creatures is, is obviously quite fantastical. It's one of Miyazaki's least fantastical movies overall in terms of the adventures, the setting, that kind of thing. It's much more grounded, and I wasn't, I wasn't primed for that at all. And it took a couple of views to start to get into it. And now I've had the real joy of vicariously through my wee girl coming to, you know, uh, well, initially through her and then just gradually coming to absolutely love it. And her reaction, Drew, I'm glad you mentioned when they're, the kids are running through the house when they first move to the house. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about that because as an adult now, I don't know, maybe I've lost touch with that, but I only have to sit with my daughter and I don't know how many times we've watched this now. Every time Satsuki and May start chasing each other around that house, she 
absolutely wets herself laughing at it. <laughs> Something about this film speaks to children. And I don't know, Drew, if you've had the pleasure of watching it with your nieces. I have, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I know they like it, but I don't know if it's that sort of reaction or not. Yeah, there's just so many bits in this film that just intuitively, like kids, just get it. Just seems to be speaking, in my experience at least, anyway, directly to them. As though Miyazaki, every so often, is sort of there in the room with you, like leaning over, whispering something humorous in their ear that you, <laughs> as an adult, can't hear. But the kids are absolutely loving it. It's um. It is a joyous film. As you say, there is very little plot, no no conflict, very little drama. It's purely just a character piece and about childhood experience, and it is all the more wonderful for it. And I think in that respect, while it's still not my f- uh, favourite Miyazaki film, I don't I, I don't like it as, as much as you guys do. Again, we're talking, you know, degrees here. We're talking cigarette papers between them, as Scott pointed out. It does come across as one of his most assured works. It's not relying on that high adventure, those fantastical elements of flight and sky pirates. Those things aren't burdens in the movie they're in, but this movie isn't burdened by them, if that makes sense. Um, It's just a pure piece of escapist childhood fantasy that speaks to the childhood experience and does what it does very well, flawlessly in fact, and just captures that in a little bubble that you can just watch time and time again. And like you say, Scott, it's just impossible now to watch it and not feel happy at the end of it. It's just a celebration mm-hmm. of what is fun about being a kid. Much as I love this film, of course my wife loves this film, um, <laughs> it is perhaps the first film that she remembers having watched. Um, oh, cool, really? Her her, her name's Mako, which is... <laughs> somewhat similar to me so you can imagine that effect that might have as a little kid and uh, well you boys were at my wedding you saw what happened there yes uh, <laughs> very much slight, somewhat total themed wedding so uh, yeah, it's a, a firm favourite in this household and we'll hear nothing bad said against it which is fortunate really because I can't imagine there is anything bad to say no. against this I can't imagine what sort of monster would like Totoro well Craig apparently originally but we've had, <laughs> yeah. we've had our concerns about his soul before <laughs> yes I've gone all soft now in my fatherhood no I'm pretty sure I would have come to have loved it anyway I mean that, that certainly as I say when we second or third watching of it was a long time before I had uh, kids to share it with um, and it was grown on me at that point but um, yes the joy of it has been somewhat uh, unlocked for me and it's bountiful fruits laid before me. <laughs> so, aye, cracking. Okay, then we'll move on to another film which similarly isn't so strong in plot and it's more about character. Kiki is a witch. Fortunately for her, she lives in a world where, while this is rare, it is not sinister or feared. Witches find a place in the community and provide services to them. And at the age of 13, which Kiki has just reached, a young witch sets out on her own for a year to explore the world and find her place. And so we see Kiki preparing to leave and say goodbye to her parents, taking with her only her mother's broomstick and her faithful, cautious, or sardonic, if you watch the US dubbed version, Black Cat Gigi. And just on the side here, it's remarkable how much of the interpretation of these films can be changed by either dubbing or subtitling choices mm. because the character of Gigi is entirely different than the original as it is in the Disney dub. Right. <sighs> anyway, after a rocky start flying-wise, Kiki heads along the coast, taking an overnight rest on a train, and eventually finds herself in a large, bustling city, which, while not necessarily unfriendly, is certainly indifferent to this new arrival. 
Feeling a little desperate and forlorn, she offers to return a forgotten item to a customer of her bakery. And as a result, Kiki is offered room and board by the kindly and heavily pregnant bakery owner in return for helping out in the business. After some soul-searching and frustration, Kiki realises she can put one of her special talents, flying, to use and begins the delivery business out of the bakery. So, I mean, you could sum this up as Kiki's delivery service. Kiki builds a delivery service. And (laughs) (laughs) you probably really couldn't argue too strongly with that. Because plot-wise, Kiki is actually pretty slight. And it could be argued that not a lot happens. Yet, that is part of both the point and the appeal. One unusual thing about Kiki's delivery service is that one's own body, perhaps withstanding, there is no antagonist, as others have observed. Only wind is the enemy. (laughs) There is no conflict, no menace. It is a charming journey alongside a young woman trying to make her way in the world, struggling with her insecurities and lack of experience, and the curveballs thrown at her by the effects of her burgeoning womanhood. Though it's not for girls alone, the coming-of-age themes, the insecurity loneliness, responsibility, the struggle to find one's place in the world, the putting away of childish things, are universal. And it's those themes that belie the true depth of the story. But the director just doesn't beat you about the head with it. Nothing Miyazaki does is throwaway, and he doesn't make films that are just for children. Kiki's delivery service is warm, funny, touching, gentle, human, believable and thoroughly engaging and after repeated viewings remains one of my favourite Miyazaki films, second probably only to Totoro. I love this film and I simply don't have a criticism of it. As you would expect, it's a visual delight from the glorious cityscapes, in this case based on Stockholm and Visby, to the simple moments that lesser artists simply wouldn't take the time to animate, such as Kiki having to adjust herself on her broom, or Gigi crawling back under the sheets when Kiki uncovers him. Maybe it adds nothing to the story, but it adds such texture to the world. Every scene, every moment matters, and is full of the sweat of the animator's brows. Kiki also displays that ever-welcome trait that... So many, mainstream at least, Western animations seem incapable of. Quietness and inaction. Taking a moment just to show someone eating makes such a difference. Uh-oh. It's just thoroughly lovely. I thoroughly lovely it is. How I wish I could go back and watch it on SVCD mm. um, <laughs> on a portable TV again, Drew, and recapture that experience of watching it for the first time. Again, it's a film that I've had the good fortune to rediscover anew with my daughter and she is almost as obsessed with Kiki as she is with Totoro and I don't have anything negative to say because if you can watch a film 30, 40, 50 times on repeat and not get fed up of it, regardless of whether it has much plot, it's doing something bloody magnificent (laughs) and right. As you point out, Drew, again, it's this thing of simple themes of childhood and growing up and in this case specifically of coming of age dealt with in not a flippant way in a respectful way that understands the experience from a child's point of view and just lets it play out albeit in a slightly hyper real fantastical world in this case again there's some element there of fantastical flying machines and stuff but by and large it's a world it's about a world where witches can exist 
it's just... I don't really have the words for it, to be honest with you. It's just a wonderful, wonderful, simple tale that is left to play out to its logical conclusion and sweeps you along with some really fantastic characterization. Again, the lushness of it visually is astounding, and nothing about this film suggests, much like Laputa, nothing really about this film visually suggests it has aged um, you couldn't really place it as, uh, you know, having been produced in the 80s, I would argue. It could just no, as easily have been a 90s so. a 90s movie. Um, and the only reason there, you know, being that if it were any later than that, there probably would have been a move towards CGI or CGI elements incorporated. And it's only really the lack of that stuff that kind of probably dates it at all. Visually, it's resplendent. And again, Miyazaki's fascination with, you know, uh, provincial Europe and those kinds of settings just is rendered so vividly on screen. You just, and especially now, really only with sort of like high def home formats now, can you really sort of appreciate it? The first time I watched the Blu-ray of this, I just wanted to climb into the screen and start walking about the streets of the town that Kiki um, moves to. Mm-hmm. It's just so alive, so vivid, so beautifully realised. This is one of those movies that, yeah, if you told me that... Um, the rest of my life, I would just have to have this uh, on constant loop in the background until the end of time. I just, fine. I've got no problem with that. (laughs) That's fine. There are a lot worse fates one could have. I absolutely love it. And as I say, I'm so fortunate to get to share it again now with uh, my wee girl that uh, it's just a, a different level of enjoyment again. Wonderful, wonderful, bloody wonderful. I think it's so rubbish. No, not really, of course. (laughs) Not a monster. Nothing really to add. I I would not have thought I like would like a film so much where so much of the runtime is devoted to helping an old woman making a pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> somehow that all works really well in context. Uh, again, just feels awfully human, very well captured and and realised. And yes, it's just lovely. Uh, there's nothing really to criticise in it. Uh, I I like the way that it's not idealised the way that. It treats it treats its humans. So there's a number of people who, you know, particularly who uh, Kiki's making deliveries to, who are actually quite nasty mm-hmm. and certainly that, thankless. Again, yeah, it, it kind of makes it feel more real when not everyone's you know welcoming and happy. There's at least a number of people who are you know actively unpleasant, which uh, is it's, it's, it's a little departure from a lot of Miyazaki's more character-focused stuff where it does tend to be a little bit idealised mm. and this being having a few elements to kind of puncture that and bring it back down to the reality is a little bit has its place and I think that does help the film. I, I enjoy this film a great deal. It's not in my ultimate top ranking for Miyazaki films but then, as I say, mm. there's not really all that much to pick between any of them. Uh, this is somewhat repetitive podcasting as much as it's just us loving all of them to varying degrees. If I have one criticism of it to level at it, and it's not a fault of the film, it's probably a fault of the Disney dub. Um, Obviously out of kind of necessity Mm. at the moment if I'm watching this, I can't really watch it in the original Japanese with with subs. So for the benefit of the little one, it it has to be the the Disney dub. And it's the, I feel like it's the least convincing or least least well-rounded of the Disney dubs that uh, certainly of the, the movies that we've reviewed for this podcast doesn't right. quite sit well. I think some of the characters, obviously, um, having Gigi voiced by Troy McClure mm. is quite is quite <laughs> difficult to see past. 
for anyone. I've not, <laughs> yeah. I've not seen this uh, the Disney dub, but I'm now very incredibly interested in what you say about oh, the character. Again. Oh, no, Phil, no, Phil Hartman. I've dubs yeah. either, but um, yeah. I knew it was Phil Hartman, because that's why I mentioned at the beginning the difference in the character, because in the Japanese original, Gigi's this really kind of cautious character. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I've heard that the Troy McClure version of it is really kind of big and kind of sarcastic. Yeah. And let me reassure I'm, you, it is not Phil Hartman. It is Troy McClure <laughs> who voices Gigi. And also just Kirsten Dunst uh, who, who voices uh, Kiki. There are moments where it feels slightly disjointed and slightly not disengaged, but a little bit over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. how much of that is uh, is is down to Kirsten? How much of it is down to the direction she's given in the recording studio? I don't know, but um, I don't know whether also too there's any difference between how it's done in the United States and Japan. But mm-hmm. I have seen people mention before that they believe that a lot of the issues with dubbing, and this is one of the films, is that the actors are all doing it separately, so they've got nothing to play off of. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine that. And also just the necessity of, I guess, you know, rushing or truncating or elongating dialogue just to fit the movement of the character's mouths. The timing of it is in itself a logistical nightmare. And I mean, when I say this is the, I find the least the least competent of of the dubs again we're talking degrees they've I mean, it's still a stellar stellar job that they've done i just think the more of the fault lies in the casting of the um the voice artist for the mm-hmm. for the disney dub rather than the actual effort that's been made with the script the timing elements so yes um but again it's such a minor complaint because it's not something that detracts uh from the the pleasure when i'm when i'm watching it but i will have to at some point go back and just watch it on my own in the original, the original Japanese with uh, subs. Um, more out of interest, you just to yeah recapture what it is I I remember specifically about the character of of Gigi in relation to how I see that character now because of that dub, and I just want to make sure that I'm not misremembering it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I want to mention something in response to that in just a second, Craig. To, so don't let me forget, please. But mm-hmm. yeah, Scott, you mentioned about some of the characters Kiki delivers to being unpleasant, and it kind of makes things more real because everybody's nice mm. there's one in particular I think is worth mentioning and it's because also it's it's rather than Keek being offended she's offended on someone else's behalf it's yeah. when she delivers that pie she helped that woman make to the very ungrateful granddaughter yeah mm. and it's just like it's a bit more roundness of her character that she's offended for this old woman yeah, yeah. she doesn't know but that just because this horrible child's really ungrateful and it's, you know it's just nice that there's that sort of element to the character yeah, yeah, because again, it feels it feels that like it could easily just be a throwaway moment, couldn't it? But it's not. It's all in service of something. It's all in service of building the character, and it's yeah, it's it's something that most most other animation studios, most other directors, probably would overlook moments like that. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point about the the dub and things, too, this is it's a great danger with any foreign language films, and animation seems to be one of the biggest culprit stroke victim depending on what's the most appropriate word if the subtitles aren't well or accurately translated or interpreted is really a better word than in translation mm-hmm. it can change things completely and then the dubs too as to take this film as a particularly good example because the the phil Hartman version of gigi is so different from the japanese one and then there's a real trait and 
I don't know if it's a Disney thing or not, but real training the dubs in again, and I've just heard other people talk at length about this, and the people whose opinions I respect, so I think they're correct. I just, I don't watch the dubs, but that there's in the dubs there are huge amounts of text added in. You know, like soon you can't see a character's mouth, so you don't know that they're not talking, and then they just add in lots of extraneous information. Mm. Which is kind of taking a liberty with people's art. And then there's other things too. And so it's why you have to sometimes put a little bit of effort to find out about a film like this, unfortunately. And again, if you're watching this with kids, then you need to use a dub version to, until they're old enough to actually read the subtitles, mm-hmm. in which case then get them trained properly. But in, and I don't know, there's been two Disney versions of this, I think, if I remember correctly. But... One choice in the dub for Kiki's delivery servers completely changes the end of the film. I mean, that's a pretty bold step to take with someone else's film. because That's fairly agrees. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, it's at the end, you know, uh, Kiki loses the ability to talk to Gigi. Mm-hmm. Right? She never regains it. Mm-hmm. And because it's, I mean, there's so many ways to interpret that. One of the... It's probably one I subscribe to and one that's a pretty common is that because, you know, she's gone through menarche, she's becoming physically a woman and that, that was why she lost her ability to fly. It's why she yeah. lost her ability to talk to Kiki and then she regains some of that. Never speaks to Gigi again and also possibly that Gigi represents her child or childhood anyway, her childishness. Yeah, that's um, how I would read it. Yeah, but then in one version of this, I don't know which version, I don't know the one you've seen, Craig, but... At the end, there is a line added that suggests that Gigi and Kiki are able to speak again. And that kind of completely undermines the point of it being like a passage of her life that she's gone through. Yeah, absolutely. There was there um, was a great deal of... Actu- this might sound ridiculous coming from an adult, but there was a great deal of poignancy in the point at which her cat stopped being able to converse with her if she stopped being able to understand her cat. I remember the first time, that first time we watched it, Drew, actually being feeling really quite saddened by that really um, emotionally it had quite an impact because it does speak to that that transition to adulthood and as the, i mean the phrase you used earlier putting aside childish things it was a really elegant way of conveying that in in you know in not an obvious way but it's fairly explicit that that is what's intended i don't know anyone who interprets it in any other way so to mm-hmm. and that's really the that's kind of the fulcrum in which the whole thing pivots. So yeah, no, to, to, to toy with that and, yeah. and to reverse that is insane. I don't think it's like a straight up, oh, I can talk to Gigi again. I, th- I think it's a bit more subtle than that. Mm. But it's well, certainly regardless. It, it, the worst, it's, um, or the best, well, it's a bit ambiguous. Whereas, you know, the director himself has said that Gigi is Kiki's immature side. Yeah. And that so she's matured beyond talking to the cat. That's just <laughs> reckless retrofitting by committee. That's a group of guys in suits somewhere going, well, well, the kids ain't going to, the kids don't like it because the cat can't talk no more. Make the cat talk again. Yeah. Then there's, um, <laughs> and there's, I'm a 20s gangster, see? <laughs> I, want the, I want the pussy to talk, see? <laughs> now you're Donald Trump. <laughs> there are um, other changes too, which, which just bewilder me because they're so pointless. Because this film's such a good example of these small changes that now that I know about them, niggle me, and it's, um, I'm, I'm never going to be watching the dubs, so it's okay. But mm. the, the stupid things, like, apparently in um, this film, in the US dub, it talks about Kiki drinking hot chocolate. 
despite the fact that she's clearly made coffee. Because Ooh. it looks like coffee, and people know what coffee looks like. I'm trying to remember that, but I can't think. I should really know that. As I say, it's I've watched it in the order of about 30 times now, at minimum, so... I really ought to. I can't think what point that is, Drew. Next, next time I inevitably <laughs> I'm asked to watch it, I will, I will pay special attention to that. Yeah, it may depend on the the version because I did check while we were talking, checking my information earlier. Mm. There was an original US dub from, I don't know, mid-2000s, I think. Mm-hmm. Is this early as that? Maybe a bit earlier. And then there was another like tweaked version in yeah. 2010. All right, well, this will be the more recent one then. This is the Blu-ray release, the more recent version. As with Laputa that suffered some of the same stuff, actually, some sort of egregious molestation in the intermediate sort of dubs where, like, you know, extraneous background chatter and bizarre stuff like that was added where not yeah. required. Um, it sounds like Kiki has suffered somewhat the same the same fate at some point, but uh, I'll, I'll need to pay attention to that because I, I don't remember the hot chocolate thing. So hopefully it's hopefully it's not in this version. That would just be crazy. Yes, because she's got what is that's how I've heard it described, and I've, I've not seen the dub, but she's seen putting sugar cubes or sugar into a drink made from a coarsely ground um, beginning. It was like which is quite oh. clearly coffee. Mm-hmm. And you would clearly have to be mental to put more sugar into hot chocolate. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I guess now we realise <laughs> yeah, what the secret of her being able to fly is. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so we are going to finish off this particular episode with Porco Rosso, which you're going to tell us about, Craig, I believe. I certainly am. I would argue Miyazaki's most disposable work under the Ghibli banner, at least, obviously, um, Cagliostro notwithstanding. Porco Rosso is nonetheless a hugely entertaining yarn set in 30s Italy that focuses on a former World War I pilot, Marco Pago. Is it Pago? I think so, Marco yes, Pago. Yeah. Marco Pago, who is now somehow cursed to have the appearance of a pig. Uh, known as Porco Rosso, the crimson pig, to the locals, Marco is now a mercenary flying contract jobs out of a romantically realised island community in a world seemingly dominated by over-designed airplanes. When he's, <laughs> when he's not rescuing school kids from cash-strapped sky pirates, those guys again, Marco, Marco's tussling in the skies with lantern-jawed American flyboy, aspiring actor and screenwriter Curtis, who is Marco's greatest rival, both in flight and in love vying as both men do for the affections of bar owner Gina, one of the few people to have known Marco in human form before the curse. Losing his plane to Curtis in a dogfight, Marco enlists the help of master craftsman Piccolo and his granddaughter Fio, who becomes Marco's companion and mechanic for the remainder of the movie. As Fio toils to build Marco a new plane, the pair attempt to evade the attention of a conglomeration of pirate gangs who have banded together to put an end to Porco once and for all, contracting Curtis as the man to finish the job. While it sometimes loses focus and can't quite fully commit to the romantic subplot between Marco and Gina, Porco Rosso is nonetheless a rip-roaring and frequently hilarious adventure that is never less than entertaining. Closer in weight to Cagliostro than many of Miyazaki's later output, Rosso is often overlooked as a lesser title, but as we've discussed, lesser in Miyazaki terms probably amounts to a four out of five star movie in layman speak. (laughs) (laughs) Only seen this film twice, and each time I keep just getting continually distracted by... The questions such as why is pig? Yes, How is pig? why? What is why this? Am pig? Am pig bad? Am pig good? What pig? 
how pig? Uh, I just don't really understand why it needed to be a pig. And this, the fact explained. that it just gets, it gets very slightly alluded to at some point is like, well, remember that spell that turned you into a pig? Yes. It's like, no, don't stop there. Continue. <laughs> when, I have so many follow-up questions to this. the circumstances <laughs> of that fascinating? Oh, I don't remember. Anyway, what were we talking about before? It's not like it's something you ever hear anybody else having. But people seem to accept them as completely normal, but there are no other anthropomorphic animals in this film. Yes. Like you, Scott, I've only seen I've only seen this movie twice. Once many years ago, it was briefly shown on super limited rotation on Sky Movies when my parents first got Sky. I accidentally happened across it and saw all but the first five minutes, I think, and then it was never on rotation again. So <laughs> I watched it just two nights ago in preparation for this podcast. And yeah, I thought, okay, in those first five minutes, it's obviously going to be explained why Marco (laughs) has been cursed and by whom and why he is, why that curse has taken the form of turning him into a pig man. Um, How how foolish of me to have made that assumption because (laughs) the first five minutes of this film is basically just a pig man listening to a radio, toying with his aeroplane, getting in the aeroplane, taking off to go and rescue some school kids, and that's the point at which I first watched the movie. So I am none the bloody wiser. There's there's something, I think, about this film that might reveal a bit more about Miyazaki in as much as the only characters that really feel to seem to have a lot of energy and personality are those kids that he's contracted to save from the Sky Pirates at the start. (laughs) Everyone else, I'm not... I don't buy quite so much. I mean, Miyazaki is a master of capturing childhood on film, but I don't think he's quite got the same eye mm. for adults. No. And no one here feels particularly convincing, and a lot of the time the child, the, the adults are acting like children, mm. and it doesn't quite fly to the, pardon expression. The kids, the kids are in a kid's movie, and the adults are all in Casablanca or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> um, it seems so half-hearted, the portrayal of, of Gina, and honestly, I'm like, there's a really, really awesome some movie to be made there if that obvious romance subplot between Marco and Gina and some further explanation of their circumstance before and then yeah. during this sort of curse episode were to be alluded to. There's a this Porco Rosso is a fantastic movie if that happens, but it, it doesn't <laughs> happen. It's just bizarre. I don't there's no point in him having been cursed and being a pig because it would all play out the same anyway. <laughs> the whole movie could just play out identically and it wouldn't make any difference if he was just a man. I know, there's, there are moments like that bit when the young girl from his friend in Milan, the granddaughter of his friend in Milan, sees him for how he really is at one point in the night. And it's like, this well, is she so thinks light. she does. Yeah, this is so like so many kind of like Germanic folk tales about like mm. cursed people and then you see the real thing at night but back in the morning they're back in it isn't like, okay go deeper please go deeper oh no okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you're spot on that if he wasn't a pig nothing would change no <laughs> and it's, it's kind of frustrating um, and I still really enjoy this film I think it's beautiful and the aerial fights and things are good and there is something still of that theme of Miyazaki's that they're are no real villains. No. That even yeah. the American guy... Even Curtis turns out to be all right. <laughs> yeah. He, <laughs> you know, he's not an awful person. Uh, maybe with a bounder and a cad, but hmm. he's not an awful person. But it's just... I don't know. It, it feels like it needs more. And I still really enjoy it. But it's... 
That's a strange beastie, bit like Marco. Yeah, it's like if you if you invert the man pig thing, right? It would make more. <laughs> the only way that whole thing would make sense is if no one mentioned the curse throughout the whole film. Marco is Marco, and then at the point at which she wakes up and is still half stupid, Theo looks at him that night and thinks for a second he looks a bit like a pig. And then goes, oh, wait a minute, no. And then he goes back to being a man. <laughs> then it would be explained away by a child being a bit sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think I've seen this film um, more than both of you. And yeah. my times watching it, the only thing I've been able to come up with was that the pig thing is metaphorical and it's some sort of self-imposed punishment because his friend died yeah. and he didn't. Mm. But yeah. it's never explored. So I don't know. No, exactly. <laughs> That's that is the closest assumption that I've been able to make myself is that it's some sort of mental punishment on his own part mm. for for what had happened previously. But again, like it's survivor's guilt, isn't it? It's yes, sort of ex- right. Exactly. There you go. So bang on the net, survivor's guilt. But it's not. Ex- <laughs> <laughs> it's not explained as to why he appears in his normal form to the girl at that point. She's not having an epiphany about him at that point and like, oh, oh, look, Theo sees him, you know, as as he truly is. And it's never alluded to again. But it does culminate, and I laughed like a drain watching this for those five minutes where Marco and Curtis are just standing <laughs> taking turns to punch each other in the face (laughs) knee deep on the shore (laughs) there is something so fantastically amazing about that I wet Mm. myself I think what's interesting to note too is is it probably until the wind rises which is actually in many ways more disappointing than this that this is the only film until then that Miyazaki basically made for Miyazaki Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and he isn't actually all that fond of it. It's something yeah, maybe worth so I understand. Out of a quote from him: Japan Airlines needed a short film to screen during the flights. At first, we weren't up for it. When we said we'd like to show dog fights, we thought they'd say no. But then he said, "That's fine. <laughs> really, it was that's fine. On- None of our pilots are pig men, <laughs> and we're not flying people about in over-designed biplanes." <laughs> <laughs> it's not 1934 really it was based on my hobby and i wanted to make something light but then yugoslavia collapsed and all these conflicts broke out in dubrovnik croatia and the islands which were my setting suddenly in the real world it became a place where battle was happening so then porco rosso became a more complicated film i guess the, the rise of the fascism that's in it in there in the mm-hmm. 1920s italy just like where it actually gets a bit deep. Um, so wait a minute, are we blaming Miyazaki for the outbreak of conflict in the Balkan countries? <laughs> yes, okay. Um, it was a very difficult film, and I was so disappointed that I'd made something for middle-aged men, because I'd been telling my staff always to make films for children, and then what did I do? Actually, the children came to see it and gave me the next chance to make another film. So when I started my next film, I was able to finally free myself of the curse of Porco Rosso. Yes, <laughs> Miyazaki caused the breakup of Yugoslavia. Possibly also fascism. <laughs> Porco Rosso is still an entertaining, if weird film. <laughs> I don't want to minimise it. There's a lot of actual really nice scenes in Porco Rosso. I mean, the scene where he's remembering what, what he thinks of, at least has been the kind of spirits of his fallen uh, mm. pilots mm, and the rain yeah. going up to the sky. That's, that's really touching. That's quite a moving scene. I, I really enjoy that piece of uh, work. And there's elements like that sort of spattered throughout it 
But again, it just does come back to the overriding question of why is Pig? I don't, I can't really quite get past that. Um, it's, it, it seems like a film that's got a lot of ideas in there, but none of them really gel together all that well. Mm. And in that regard, it's probably surprising that it turns out to be as enjoyable as it does. Yeah, it, It's still a solid and enjoyable film to watch, but it is actually a bit of a mess when you come and try and pull it apart. Yeah. You can understand what he means in that quote, Drew, about making a film for middle-aged men, because it's probably... It's the only one of his films, certainly, that we'll talk about tonight that isn't, you know, with the exception, again, of Cagliostro, it's the only one of his Ghibli output to this point that isn't aimed quite overtly at, at children. a family audience. Yeah, maybe. a family yeah. audience, certainly, at least, which is not to say it's not suitable for a family audience, but the, the child characters in this are almost entirely incidental. It is a film about adults, you know, looking quite morose and going about being quite moody, despite the fact, obviously, it's still completely fantastical and all sorts of crazy stuff happens. But yeah, you kind of wish... Yeah, you, uh, I don't know what I wish for Porco Rosso, but I can't, I can't say that I didn't enjoy watching it because I did, and I, I you know, there were certain points <laughs> which I laughed like a train. The bit where he throws, the bit where Curtis, where they both run out of ammo, and so Curtis <laughs> is shooting at him <laughs> with a pistol. And then Marco throws the handle at <laughs> Oh, my days. Oh, dear. There are some really beautiful sort of moments of comic time in it. And as I say, for some reason, just that that scene toward the end of the pair of them just like taking turns to hammer lumps out of each other just really appeals <laughs> to my sense of humour. But it is the most flyaway of, uh, of the output that we've seen certainly to this point. And I think... Probably fair to say we won't encounter anything as egregiously sort of lightweight as this in the latter half of his career, I think. But again, you're still talking degrees. It's still it's it's probably the most disappointed of the films that we'll talk about, but it's still super super enjoyable. And I'm not going to say don't watch it because I still had a blast. Yeah, and you can even just appreciate it aesthetically because Ooh. like so much of his stuff is gorgeous. It's so colourful and well animated. It's just yeah. a nice place to be. It's again, yeah, precisely. It's again, as much as we said, spoke about uh, this with Kiki, Drew, it's still, it's at least as good a looking film as, as Kiki, I would argue. The the Adriatic and all the islands and stuff. And yeah. then, yeah, it's just a lovely, lovely thing. Yeah, the only thing that betrays the fact that and perhaps Miyazaki wasn't making this to his usual standard is the is the plotting of it. It's certainly not the production value of it and the effort that's gone into the animation and the design. You know, none of that none of that is half assed. No. So then, Scott, perhaps you would like to fill us in some of the feedback we've had. Sure, there's a few. We have someone called Leslie Tavendale. Don't know who that would be. Uh, oh. Doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> it's at nibbly underscore 81 on the Twitter. My neighbour Totoro is a huge hit in her household. The animation is outstanding and the storyline tugs at your heartstrings. Couldn't agree more. And Kiki's Delivery Service is another favourite in the house, as are most Studio Ghibli films. They're all visually stunning. Yes, aren't they just? And Perpetual Dumb Machine. At Blake writes on the Twitter, always liked Ghibli's dramas more than the action, with uh, Kiki being his fave. Uh, Runtime usually feels well used, gorgeous art throughout, beautiful details, and probably better with the magical adventure dramas than the action. Um, Yes, broadly agree. I just expect I might pick pick at the edges of that, at least when we talk about our second part, where we get like some spirited away in Princess Mononoke. Mm. Uh, But certainly, I broadly would agree with all that stuff. So yes, sir. Thanks very much for your feedback on the old Twitters. So we will be returning very shortly with a look at this latter half of Miyazaki's directorial career. In the meantime, if you'd like to contact us, you can do so at, on Twitter, twitter.com slash fudsandfilm, on Facebook, facebook.com slash fudsandfilm, by email, 
podcast at fudsonfilm.com and if you've been enjoying our podcasts and have a minute to take to leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud or anywhere else you happen to be getting them from, we'd really appreciate that. It helps us, well, feel better, basically, if we're entirely honest with you, <laughs> um, as well as hopefully directing more people our way. Until the next time, though, I have been Drew Tavendale. That man there was Scott Morris. Bye. And the other man there was Craig Eastman. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.